You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. All right, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to the Long Room Hub. Uh, And welcome to uh, the final and concluding lecture of the lecture series uh, 1918 and the New Europe. Um, this uh, was, uh, or still is, um, the third signature lecture series that the Long Room Hub organized in the last uh, five uh, to six years. And all these lecture series actually um, originated in uh, collaboration uh, between uh, the Department of History the Center for European Studies, the Department of Russian and Slavonic Studies, uh, and the Long Room Hub. And um, I think we could, uh, we could say that all these uh, three lecture series uh, were incredibly successful, mostly thanks to you and thanks to all the people who, who attended uh, the individual lectures. My name is Balaj Apur and I'm, I'm going to chair um, uh, the event today. Um, I am the director of the Center for European Studies uh, at the moment. Now, since this is the, since this is the, uh, the last lecture in the series, um, I, uh, I think it's time to, um, to, to thank all the institutions and the people who were involved in, in organizing the series and making this event happen. Uh, most importantly, of course, the Department of, of History and two people there who are hiding in the middle, Molly uh, Pucci and uh, Graham uh, Murdoch. Uh, of course, we should also acknowledge the contribution of the Center for European Studies uh, as well. And most importantly, uh, the Trinity uh, Long Room Hub, the, uh, the institution that, of course, hosted uh, this lecture series and, and supported uh, the series through, um, uh, through an incredible uh, uh, promotional uh, campaign. Um, now, uh, this is the um, last uh, lecture and um, uh, this is going to uh, remain at a fairly general level. Those of you who attended the previous uh, lectures have, uh, um, have heard uh, all sorts of interpretations um, about the collapse of the of the um, uh, Habsburg Empire, the, the first three uh, lectures discussed the collapse from a more ge general perspective, um, uh, and and provided new interpretations and, and fresh insights into the collapse, um, including the relatively peaceful uh, episodes of the collapse, the multinational dynamics um, um, at the time of the collapse of the empire, and the legacies. Of, uh, of the collapse um, from the perspective of, of ethnic um, uh, conflicts and, and nationalist policies in the 20th century. And then we also had a number of case studies that highlighted um, uh, previously understudied um, aspects of, of, uh, of post-war uh, politics in, in two countries, in particular Poland uh, and Romania. And of course, uh, the, the Romanian lecture also highlighted the, the, the long-term uh, legacies of, of the collapse of the Habsburg Empire. So there were new insights, um, uh, fresh approaches um, uh, that were, that were uh, revealed and discussed by our um, uh, speakers previously. And there were speakers as well who talked about the long-term uh, legacies of the collapse of the Habsburg uh, Empire as well, so historical legacy was also a theme and a notion that our that our um, uh, speakers, um, uh, our guest speakers, uh, talked about. Now, the, the current lecture is not uh, going to be about the past. Actually, this is going to be about the future. Uh, so, our our 
speaker today uh, is uh, Peter Oppor, whom I have the pleasure uh, of introducing here. He's going to talk about expectations uh, uh, from the future at the time of 1918. And I understand that he's not going to follow uh, a traditional chronolog chronological approach. He is actually going to move uh, uh, or approach the past from the perspective uh, of the future. So it will remain uh, at a fairly um, uh, general um, and in some cases theoretical uh, level. Now, as for our speaker, uh, Peter Rapport, he is um, um, uh, a full-time researcher at the Institute of History, uh, which uh, um, is at the Hungarian Academy of Sciences, uh, which is actually an endangered institution uh, these days, and, and he represents actually an endangered uh, species in, in contemporary Hungary. Uh, that is a critical autonomous intellectual. Uh, there's very few of those uh, are left. Um, and he has published uh, uh, um, a lot, uh, uh, actually, um, on uh, the history uh, of communist Hungary, of the history of communism in Eastern Europe, mostly on the, on the memory uh, of communism and on various representations of communism after 1989. He has published um, uh, books, edited volumes on, on representations of communism in museums uh, and, and in films. He uh, wrote and edited a volume, or co-authored and edited a volume on, on, uh, uh, the, uh, on the state of, of the historical discipline uh, after the collapse of communism uh, in Eastern Europe. He also co-edited a volume, actually with me, on, Sovietiz on Sovietization, on the history of Sovietization uh, in Eastern Europe. And, and most recently, uh, we also co-edited uh, a volume together on uh, the heritage of cultural opposition um, in uh, in, uh, uh, this, in Soviet uh, and the Soviet bloc and in uh, the former communist countries, which was published last year. He also uh, authored uh, or wrote a monograph, uh, which essentially um, offers um, an in-depth analysis of the representation and memory of the first Hungarian communist dictatorship, uh, which was actually declared exactly uh, 100 years ago. Uh, today is the anniversary. Uh, it was the 21st of March, March 1919. That's when the first communist dictatorship in Hungary was, was proclaimed. And Peter actually wrote um, uh, a book on representations and the memory uh, of, of that uh, very short uh, but very intense event, uh, focusing mostly on how the communist dictatorship after the Second World War represented or dealt with the memory and the legacy uh, of the first uh, communist experiment uh, of 1919. That's a, that's a book that was published uh, a few years ago and that book has been uh, translated into Hungarian uh, as well. Now, so without further ado, um, I'd like to invite uh, Peter to, to take the stage here and um, deliver uh, his lecture, which uh, is entitled Rethinking 1918 Interventions into the Future. Thank you. First of all, thank you for um, inviting me. Um, it's, it's my pleasure and uh, privilege to have the opportunity to talk in uh, Dublin. Um, 
in many ways, what, uh, what I'm offering uh, today is an intellectual excursion. And, uh, um, and most of all, because, because I'm not a historian, I'm, 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 I'm a historian neither the First uh, World War nor the interwar period. I'm, I'm a historian, scholar, uh, doing research mostly on, uh, on the, the post-Second World War period um, and the second half of the 20th century. Um, and what I'm um, actually suggesting uh, this evening is to, is to open the window on, uh, on the first post-World War period through uh, uh, the experiences of 1989. Um, and, I'm, and I'm rather convinced that, uh, that such a, a um, regressive method, a reading, reading history backward, uh, is, uh, is able to, um, to shed uh, fresh light on, uh, on the history of the uh, first post-war period, so roughly the years between uh, 1918 and 1922. Um, um, and also that, uh, that such a methodological uh, innovation is, uh, is uh, um, possible to, um, uh, to shed um, um, well, uh, interesting, stimulating, and uh, hopefully also um, productive um, um, perspectives on, uh, on uh, rethinking uh, the history of, uh, of the post-1918 uh, uh, period. Um, the end of the Cold War brought a liberating moment of creative fantasy into the imagining and planning of possible futures. Verier's visions of what would possibly occur, as well as plans of what should have desirably occurred emerged during the first few years following 1989. The efforts made on planning future processes demonstrate that elites in Europe, educated middle classes, professionals, wage earners, and also students in many ways, considered 1989 as an opportunity to overcome the conditions of the Cold War, which then was seen as the hindrance for improving the future. Elites, intellectuals, and large proportions of European societies found it very likely that the future was possible to anticipate, that it was possible to foresee large and decisive trends of socio-developments, therefore it was possible to plan for even large systematic changes. However, the multiplication of ideas about and attempts to plan the future also suggests that crucial components of prognosis about further development were shaken and the future of Europe itself became uncertain. 20th century Europe was particularly rich of various political and cultural projects of future that, all differences notwithstanding, shared deeply ingrained common modernist presumptions. In fact, the world of modernity is a world that constructs its present in the backyard of a projected tomorrow. Hence, the future represents both a challenge and a chance for the governance of modern societies. The question of how societies' futures could be steered and controlled became the central issue of political, intellectual, and cultural life in 19th and 20th century Western modernity. Clearly, the mechanisms of tackling the uncertainty of future around 1989 were based on these broader modernist presumptions uh, of governing the future and were particularly shaped by the emerging expertise of future studies of the 1960s and 1970s, the legacy of which was still very vivid during the 1980s and 1990s. Nonetheless, the hopes and fears concerning the future, as well as the ways to cope with them, show striking similarities with the two proper post-war periods of the 20th century Europe, roughly the years between 1918, 1922, and 1945, and 1949. 
This paper tries to make sense of these discontinuities and seeks to link these commensurable aspects of the postwar periods together. It also asks if these interleaved discontinuities reveal a specific set of techniques for managing the future in the postwar periods, if there was a specific postwar regime of the future. Such an analysis requires the extension of the scope of investigation beyond considering politics of future as the asset of nation states or international affairs. Visions and plans of the future concerned more than the political body of communities. They incorporated, in fact, crucial aspects of the human environment and also the deepest layers of individual identity. In the two postal periods, a multiplicity of projects emerged that not only imagined, but rather designed the future in the shape of action plans that aimed at achieving clearly defined preset goals. Planning the future created a similarly broad range of modes of exercising powers for a similarly rich set of institutions and individuals. The two postal periods and the post-Cold War years differed from peacetime interventions into the future in their use of a comprehensive set of action plans that addressed all important aspects of societies simultaneously. The idea of planning for the future was instrumental in the recasting of European states and international system after 1918. The creation of a system of independent nation-states replacing former composite empires was informed by the belief that empires represented an irrational and contingent, thus unpredictable form of governance, which was seen by influential politicians, for example by George Kilmanso, as the main cause of the war. Consequently, to prevent future conflicts and to secure the desirable future, a rationalized system of predictable states had to be actively created. International institutions, particularly the League of Nations or the control over Germany, became similarly means to actively influence the future to prevent wars in Europe. Although after 1918 the general wish was rather to return to pre-war normalcy and less to experiment with radical new economic and social innovations, several European governments, intellectuals and social reformers designed plans to reorganize the allegedly not fully effective economies, social and political structures. All these programs shared the intention to impact upon economic productivity, working conditions, the management of household and families in the foreseeable future. Influential ideas of how to use technology and scientific methods to optimize efficiency throughout society were developed in the UK, France and Germany, but impacted most countries in the continent. Scientific management in Britain, the scientific organization of labor in France, and the rationalization programs in Germany, where even a special governmental body, the Reichskuratorium für Wirtschaftlichkeit, was set up in 1921 to coordinate such efforts, shaped important intellectual and professional interventions in the post-First World War years. Rationalization, thus making things effective by scientific methods, became measures what social reformers and governmental organizations applied to shape in a systematic way the outlook of families, housework, sexuality and reproduction, the social body and healthcare systems in the future. Interventions into demographic processes became an important area of influencing the future in a systematic way after 1918. Uh, governments realized the importance of population statistics in social planning and also encouraged the improvement of demography as a useful means to forecast. After the end of the First World War, population forecast had vital, even though somewhat absurd implications, particularly in the Franco-German and East Central European context. 
French political elites were terrified by the prospects of having a future Germany with 70 million inhabitants facing 38 million French in a future conflict. Similarly, Hungarian and Romanian authorities tended to calculate and also actively influence the numbers of ethnic Magyars or Romanians, most importantly in the contested Transylvanian region. The concerns about low post-war birth rates, which projected toward the decline of fertility and population growth, largely shaped population policies in Europe following 1918. In this period, most governments pursued actively pro-natalist policies, supported by several demographic experts and concerned intellectuals. The French programs for reconstructing East Central Europe typically contained elements of the welfare state, health policies, improving medical systems, as well as promoting pro-natalist measures. Pro-natalism was not the only measure to intervene into foreseen demographic developments, however. Various social health programs to combat alcoholism and tuberculosis and to develop effective birth control emerged in many European states during the early 1920s. In Central, Eastern and Southeastern Europe, the concepts of social hygiene, however, were firmly linked to the idea of securing the future of the nation-state. Since most of the newly established nation-states defined themselves as the states of their ethnic majority, their future was soon connected to the continuity of their ethnic identities. Thus, the cultural, but increasingly also the biological heritage of such ethno-nations appeared as vital to be detected, stored and cultivated. If the modern state wanted to become the guardian of the future, as the argument went, it had to become the protector of biological capital. Eugenics, hence, emerged as a proper science of the future. It offered a rational, predictable and controllable process of constant renewal. Through the establishing of the objective components of degeneracy and decline, it seemed possible to select elements of rejuvenation that would establish humanity's future on truly healthy foundations. Although such ideas emerged all over Europe, the most influential and extensive network of experts of planning the future by means of biomedicine emerged in Weimar, Germany in the, in the early 1920s. The object of government and expert intervention by means of social hygiene was the individual. Individuals themselves, however, were also concerned with shaping their own futures. The number of insurance contracts and private health insurances quickly grew in the 1920s, particularly in Germany, which contributed to the spectacular increase of joint stock insurance companies in the period. Following the First World War, private health insurance was a concern well beyond its traditional consumers, low-earning working classes. The, uh, the insurance companies in Germany or Switzerland, for example, expanded their clientele onto wealthier middle classes. Plastic surgery, a means to actively intervene into one's life expectations in the future, was invented after the First World War. In the post-First World War period, the most important subject of intervention into individual identities, however, was the gendered body. Typically, left-wing socialists, as the Austrian Marxist Max Adler or Leonhard Frank, developed plans with the intention to produce techniques of shaping the future of male bodies. The programs of regeneration generated the multifarious cohorts of experts and expertise of influencing the future. The regeneration of post-war societies means a complex task. It created space for a complex set of interventions and also a complex range of expertise. Remarkably, most of the important inquiries into the direction of the future, considerations of the meaning of history, philosophies of history of the 20th century, were published in the three post-war periods. 
These were, however, not only gloomy visions of the decline or the celebrations of the glory of Western civilization in the future, but also suggested programs of how to avoid the fall or how to sustain the triumph. In short, these philosophies of history were attempts to provide theoretically founded techniques of mastering the future. For example, Oswald Spengler's Der Untergang des Abendlandes from 1918 suggested the plan of Prussian socialism not only to stop the decline of civilization at the German borders, but rather to establish a state that would fit adequately to the conditions of the future and thus would be able to rule it. It is not only the multiplication of action plans for systematic intervention into state systems, demography, economy, or individual identities, which relate the post-1989 uh, years to the postal periods of the 20th century. The multiplication of plans reflects the experience that the future was open with many possibilities, which were, however, not simply visions, abstract ideals, or pressing worries, but were actually possible realistic scenarios that were all conceivable in very concrete terms. First of all, in the postal period, the emergence of supranational integrations and the reconstruction of independent nation-states as roads towards the future seemed equally possible. On the one hand, the fact that the pre-First pre World War empires of Austria-Hungary, Russia and Ottoman Turkey collapsed and fell into new republics convinced many Europeans that the nation-state marked the tendency of future development. On the other hand, the success of supranational and imperial project seemed also very probable during the post-war years. Several European intellectuals, particularly in France, Germany and Austria, developed plans of a future united Europe around 1922 and believed in the birth of a new European elite of minds and the overcoming of national rivalry in a future supranational community. The acquisition of former German colonies by the British and the French after 1918 convinced many that imperial expansion would continue. However, the unexpected success of the Bolsheviks in Russia turned the forthcoming world revolution and global socialist federation into a tangible future for many others. Second, after 1918, it was a common wisdom that Europe's global role was challenged by America and Asia. It seemed very likely that the USA would take over Europe's place in global hegemony. But it seemed similarly possible that Japan or China could step forward and claim such roles. Intellectuals like Hermann Hesse, D.H. Lawrence, or Bronislav Malinowski in the early 1920s rediscovered the appeal of extra-European world and believed in that cultures of Africa and Asia would provide models for the revitalization of Europe. For most <coughs> Europeans, in the postal period, however, America was an image of the future, an image that summed up the expectations towards progress and modernization. America had the capacity to imagine and formulate what most Europeans hoped from the post-war world, the promise of a just, efficient, and good life. However, such images concern more than material growth and technological innovation. America was seen by many to stimulate activities and programs to move Europe towards the future, to mobilize new energies in exhausted, disappointed, and decrepit Europe, to rejuvenate societies, to regenerate communities, and to protect them against the temptations of cultural atavism. Nonetheless, in the postal period, there was enough evidence to imagine equally the harmful outcome of these processes. Following the Great War, 
Many feared the repercussions of American impact on the European future. In 1919, for example, Paul Valéry saw in the United States the par excellence achievements of industrial civilization, where efficiency was developed to its highest degree, but which at the same time eliminated humanism, the individual, and the instinctual. The disorientation concerning individual physical identities meant a more general experience of the post-war period. Intellectuals, politicians, and ordinary former combatants do very dif different conclusions from the radical experience of the war between 1914 and 1980. Humanist intellectuals were convinced that the future of men would be healthier masculine bodies, rejecting bellicose brutality, but endorsing personal freedom and solidarity with humankind. Several former frontline combatants, however, like the German Ernst Jünger or Benito Mussolini, believed that from the trenches a new type of male body emerged, which would master wartime brutality, uh, integrated, integrate advanced technology into its new self, and turn them into creative energies instead of rejecting them. New female bodies, in contrast, appear to possibly threaten personal identities in the future. As urban spaces began to be saturated by the spectacular figure of new short-haired, manly-looking female bodies, cultural critics started to fear that such corporeal novelties would destroy first the female, then subsequently also the male sex. This opening up of the future, the multiplication of possible scenarios certainly had a destabilizing effect. In a post period, the typical experience of the future was the growing uncertainty concerning developments to come. However, the problem concerned more than the difficulty to see clearly what sort of events would possibly occur. What became uncertain concerned the components that normally were conceived to move the temporal process, states, international system, economic and social structures, and cultural canons. The absence of their clear understanding, in turn, made the direction of history unsure, but meant, in short, a critical challenge to the regime of the future of modernity. The ability to intervene into the future, first of all, presumed a future, the possibility to conceive new events, which would bring qualitative changes in social structures, in cultures, in the modes of making politics and in economic production, the opening up of horizons of expectations. At the same time, however, the confidence in influencing the future is based on a certain level of unchanged constant elements of the temporal process. The ability of planning and calculating responsibly presumes the continuity of components that frame the perception of temporality and the idea that time, in fact, progresses to somewhere. As Sigmund Baumann put it, such a design-driven rationality creates an image of a continuous world which also presupposes a specific understanding of time that is cumulative, linear, and final, since only such temporal order enables projections into the future and the gradual physical technological constructions of a grand social political project. The great wars of the 20th century and the collapse of the Cold War order shattered these fundamental principles of modernity. They, in many ways, suspended modern temporal order. Projects of the future in the postal periods were developed against the disturbed order of temporality, the crisis of post-wars. Securing regeneration, the policies of mastering the future emerged in the context of post-war crisis, saturated by the perception of disorientation, decline, but also hope. The methods of mastering the future in the postal period were not particularly new, but their use was certainly different than in periods of peace. 
it is the component of containment that makes the mechanisms of influencing the future in the post-war eras different than similar practices of the interwar and peace periods. In these circumstances, the interventions into the future aimed at limiting the number of possible scenarios and hence containing the uncertainty of the temporal process. In short, restoring the predictability of historical development in order to reconstruct the ability of shaping the future by the conventional techniques of modernity, planning, foresight and forecast. The regeneration of societies, economies, political systems and cultural creativity in the postal periods was also a regeneration of modern temporality, an intervention to normalize time. Thank you very much for your attention.